Why would someone who had an accident that left them a quadriplegic say that that day, the day of the accident, saved their life? Special guest this week is Scott Louder. He has an amazing story. Listen in now. Well, Scott Louder, thank you so much for joining us on the No Gary Areas podcast. Most of our listeners actually watch online, but for those that are just listening to an audio platform, you got to help them out a little bit. You're not sitting in the same kind of chair that I am. So so explain that for those listening and not watching. Well, first of all, pleasure to be here. Thank you Mm -hmm. for having me. Um, And yes, for those of you that are just listening, I'm definitely in a different type of chair. I'm a C4 quadriplegic, which means I basically can't really move or feel from the shoulders down. Wow. Okay. Now we're going to get to that story in a moment because it is an amazing, amazing, powerful story. And uh, a story that even though most of us can't resonate or understand what it's like to be where you are, we all have things that we have to overcome, issues, disappointments, discouragements, and your story really speaks into that. So I'm really excited about that. But let me back up a little bit and get a little background on you, okay? We got the audience. They're interested. They're going to stay with us now. Where where are you from originally, Scott? Originally, I'm from uh, the Central Valley in California. Okay. A little town called Madera, just north of Fresno. Okay. So a little farming town. Yeah. All right. This injury took place in 2000, the year 2000, you were 20 years old, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah. And actually, I'm jumping ahead a little bit in the story, but what's interesting is July 6th, right? Yep, that's it. Th- this is what's so interesting. When you told me that two days ago when we were on the phone and you told me that date, that's our anniversary, my, my wife and I, that's our anniversary. And I was thinking back on the day that my wife and I were celebrating our ninth anniversary, I had no idea that somewhere else in this world, someone was going through uh, an event that was going to change your life forever. And, and that happens every moment of every day, somewhere, something like that, correct? Yes. Okay, so you grow up in, in, um, here in California, but you were one of the top athletes in the country in diving. In fact, you were ranked number one? Yes, I was ranked number one in the country my freshman year. I was recruited by UC Davis. I was training and, and really working towards the 2024 Olympics. That yeah. was a, that was a dream. Yeah. Big dream, big, big goal. Very difficult. Um, really, I I was I would have just been happy just getting to be part of the Olympic trials because yeah, you know the U.S. is just a powerhouse and we have so many amazing athletes and mm-hmm. especially in in that sport they only take the top two to the Olympics. So well, Scott, here's the interesting thing though. Um, most of us, or a lot of us, when we were little, we all dreamed of being the Olympics. <laughs> but you're at 20 years old. It's not just a pipe dream. It's not, I mean, you're ranked number one. Like, you have a legitimate shot at making the Olympic team. I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. So when did you start uh, diving? Or where did that come come out of? Did you Were you in gymnastics early on in life? or? Yeah, well, I was um, really athletic, really busy kids so 
My mom put me in every sport there was. Yeah, yeah. To try to, you know. <laughs> yeah, figure out where you were going to fit in or where well, you were going to land, right? Well, it didn't drain my energy. Yeah, oh, busy. oh. She was a busy kid, man. <laughs> yeah, so she needed to try to tire you out every day so you'd go to sleep. Or Wow, okay. Was there a sport like early on that you loved specifically? I was. I loved soccer. Mm-hmm. I was really good at soccer. I did do gymnastics when I was really little. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed, really enjoyed like trampoline and yeah. I enjoyed acrobatics, flips, and well, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, right. I was assuming that. Yeah, but I also in the summertime loved swimming, and I I loved girls. Yeah, and seeing <laughs> girls, you know. Yeah, dressed all cute. Yeah, in their bathing suits. So, the sport good place I, to do that is in the pool. Right, yeah. and the sport um, diving. I did like a two week summer class. Yeah, one summer, I think the summer before like high school. Okay, so you're like in eighth grade, going into your high school years. You go to a camp. You'd never done diving before that time. No. And you do a two-week diving. And did, did you did you see, recognize you were very proficient at this right away? I mean, I did. I was just out there having fun. But the coach noticed real fast and talked to my mom and said, you probably want to get him into really? more, more serious yeah. classes. Yeah. And so that's the way we went. And yeah. Yeah. Now, we call this podcast No Gray Area, so there's no lying here. Did you go to that camp to just check out the girls, or were you actually interested in diving? I was interested <laughs> in both. Okay. The the priority, probably the girls first. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. So so you're going into high school. You go to this camp. Your coach is noticing that you're actually really proficient. You're good at this. So where do you go from there? Um, did you start diving then right away, going to – classes on this i mean it's not a school sport right or is it in california at the time yes it was a high school sport they kind of mixed swimming and diving together yeah so the divers were kind of like the kickers of the football team (laughs) yeah yeah which everybody yeah in high school you're kind of like you're the kicker but then later on people are like you're the smart one yeah yeah well and also i mean it's entertaining you get out there and everyone in the pool you go throw some crazy dive that only people see done in the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. All the high school girls are watching. Yep. From the other team too. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> and comparing it to the kicker football is actually pretty good. I suspect yeah. because um, the kickers, the game a lot of times falls in their hand. And I suspect that it takes a tremendous amount of focus and diving like it would as a kicker like you got to try to clear out all the noise that's going on in your head am i right like when you walk out on that that diving board i suspect there has to be a tremendous amount of focus to make it to the level that you did yeah and um, like especially in like high school and things you have basically the swimming is going on at the same time as diving so you have all that commotion yeah even you know some pools you're looking out and you're seeing people swimming back and forth, so yeah, you have to learn how to yeah, just block it all block out, block all that out. So walk us through July sixth, two thousand. You're at uh, you're ranked number one. You kind of have you t- you shared with th- this with me on the phone. You kind of have everything the world can throw at you at that at that time that they can that can throw at you that says this is what's going to make you happy, right? So explain that a little bit. So I mean, at that time, I was not a superstar, but Kind of felt like in a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Big, big school, UC Davis, I think at that time it was like 25,000 yeah. student under, under undergrad and 
basically everyone know, knew who I was. Yeah. My teachers knew who I was. They'd let me slide with with classes. Yeah. Um, you know, just girls, lots of girls interested, always talking to me. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. And everyone, that, you want to be the popular one. You want to be the one everyone's interested in, the one everyone wants to know. And that's what you had. That's, that's what, what I had. had. And so the, you, you go to practice July 6, 2000. It's a feels like a normal practice day. Walk us through what happens then. So basically it was a summertime. Um, it was a unique situation. My, my UC Davis coach, she co-coached with the UC Berkeley coach, um, like a club diving team Mm -hmm. of all ages. And they both coached that club team in Walnut Creek, which was about a little over an hour drive from UC Davis in the East Bay Mm -hmm. of um, California. Anyway, she wasn't going to be able to make it that day, and she'd asked me to cover her young kids coaching classes in the morning to coach the little kids. And then in the afternoon I would practice with the Berkeley coach mm-hmm. for probably like three hours, mm-hmm. which great. Yeah. No problem. So went down there, coached the kids. Um, everything was going fine. Started doing my practice and, um, about 30 minutes in, um, as I'm coming off the diving board, I up in the air, high up in the air, probably about five meters, and I see a girl right below me in a red swimming suit. And you're in the middle of your dive. Yeah, I'm high up in the air. Yeah. And um, that's 15, about 15 feet for all the Americans that can't do the metric system. <laughs> okay, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, there's really nothing I can do, and I've got about half a second to react, so. Is this when you think back on it, does it kind of go slow, or was it going in slow motion at the time, or was it everything was just split second like it actually happened? I mean, I've gone back over it a billion times in my mind of, what could I have done differently when, Uh you know, just anything, and I mean, it just, you don't have time to react. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's like, what do you do in, in a car accident, yeah, a high speed car accident, yeah, you kind of turn your face, yeah. So, so that's about all I did. Under you and you're coming down into a dive, right, head first, and so yeah, I landed up landing on her hip, head first, instantly breaking my neck at the fourth vertebrae down, and so I hit her. Um, everything went black and white for a split second but I was conscious in the pool and we're trained to go into the water and then do like a somersault mm-hmm. under the water to help you know reduce the splash and so out of years of habit of doing that I've got used to just blowing air out of my nose to keep from getting water up your nose mm-hmm. and so you know, I'm probably like five nine, five ten at this time, hundred and eighty five pounds, all muscle, in the water, sinking like a rock. 
This is a 16 foot deep pool, sinking like a rock, blowing air out of my nose, trying to swim, and nothing's happening. Nothing's working. And it's just calm, surreal, peaceful, just watching air bubbles blow out of my nose, go up past my face, and thinking, why can't I swim? And then going, I better start holding on to this air, because... Yeah. How long before someone realizes I'm not coming up? And uh, so I stopped blowing the air out. And maybe a second later, I hear a big splash. And sure enough, someone came and, and rescued me, saved me. Yeah. It wasn't who I suspected. Yeah. It was a 16 year old boy doing a diving class. Wow. But he was um, lifeguard trained. He did summer lifeguarding, and he saw, he knew, he realized, recognized, and he saved my life. As you're sinking then, like, did you immediately recognize this is this is serious, or were you were you still confused going, what's going on? Why, why can't I move anything? Yeah, I think that's one of those things, when you're paralyzed, that's the furthest thing from your mind. Is it? That, oh, I'm paralyzed. Yeah, you're not, you're not even, it doesn't even register. I was so ignorant to it, the fact that I didn't even realize someone who was paralyzed couldn't feel. At that time, I thought it just meant you couldn't move. But you, but you actually aren't feeling anything then from, from your neck down. No, yeah. and I'm just like, what's going on? But I didn't even realize that. Yeah. So they jump in, backboard me, are starting to lift me out of the pool, and I can feel just a little bit of a slide on the back of my head. And I, I can still talk. And I cry out, stop, stop, stop. And the Berkeley coach was like, Scott, what's wrong? I said, I'm not strapped on. And he's, yeah, you are. Like, no, I felt myself slide. He's like, no, all the straps are on. I was like, I can't feel them. What straps? And so then the paramedics came, did the tests. Can you feel this? Can you feel this? No, no. Okay. We're taking you right now. Wow. In that moment, could you start seeing the looks on other people's faces that, that was registering, that was making you register that this is serious? Or were you were was that already happening? Were you starting to figure it out yourself? I'd like to say yes, but no. Get into the ER. Um, they do x-rays and everything. The doctors are explaining to me that, you know, basically my spinal cord is being pinched and that they need to, you know, straighten out my spine, realign it to unpinch it. In my mind, that meant, oh, you unpinch it, maybe six months of rehab and I'll be back. I'll be fine. So I started hitting on the the little ER nurse. It's still about the girls, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Helping me out, you know, flirting with her. And then I saw her face. She finally had to leave the room because she knew. Yeah. And she knew I didn't know. When did you start to know? Um, when they started drilling into my school. Was that fairly quickly when, when you got to the hospital? I mean, to me, they had me on a lot of drugs at that point. So yeah. Yeah. an hour seemed like a few minutes. Yeah. But basically, they explained that they needed to put me in a halo to hopefully realign the the vertebrae 
um, that at that point they were being a little more honest that they couldn't just go in and manually manipulate it because the slightest wrong move and that would kill me. So this is what they had to do. And in order to put the halo on and attach it, they have to drill four holes into your skull to screw it on. And then from there, they attach um, wires and hang weights off the head of the bed to cause traction and hopefully pull, you know, your spine all straight and aligned again. You're sharing things like that. that, I mean, even when you say like drilling four holes in the skull, there's not a lot of the listeners or me that that's ever happened to like it just I'm sure there were so many things that in those next few hours and days that you months. were going through in months years that, that none of us will ever experience that so um what was that first night like had it had it dawned on you then by that night did you know no honestly in the beginning it was just survival mode it was making through the next minute. Um, I think when something this extreme happens, it takes so long for your mind yeah. to really start understanding, fully comprehending yeah. what's going on. Like It was probably over a month before I was even thinking or questioning like wait wait a second how how am i going to the bathroom so it all those things that it, it took some time to realize you know scott i've had one time in my life that when, when people talk about like you wake up the next morning and you go this has to be a dream i've had one time where that really happened and i'm assuming that this this was not the next morning it sounds like and the next morning, and the next morning, the next morning, you were probably waking up going, is this a dream? Is this really happening? So I want to come back to that. Sure, I want to come back sure. to that in a moment. Let, let's jump into something else that right before we turned these mics on, you had shared, which I think is so important for the audience to hear, because I think the audience, I've been here. I don't want this to be offensive in any way, but you actually said that this was your thought processes too, because I've often thought, you know, I was athletic when I was younger, not at the level that you were. No one was asking me to maybe be in the Olympics. It was a dream, but my dream was unrealistic. Yours was realistic. But I remember often saying, I said this out loud to people, I, I would rather be dead than paralyzed. Now that the audience right now is going, I can't believe you just said that to Scott. But you were telling me before we turned on these mics that you had some injuries prior. So tell us about your knee injury and what your thought process was. Well, I can tell you for a fact I felt the exact same way. Mm. Mm, not ashamed to admit it either. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, that's reality. That's truth. You know, top tier athlete. And it had to, it had some torn cartilage. And one of my knees had to have knee surgery. Knee surgery, yeah, was botched basically. Long story short, it got terrible infection all the way down internally in the knee they had to come back and do knee surgery again but just to clean out the infection and they explained to me 
the possibility of having to amputate, you know, from above the knee down was a real possibility. And I told them, you know what? No, Mm -hmm. I'm not living with one leg, basically. Mm -hmm. I would rather take my, you know, either fight that infection off, beat it, or die. Yeah. Those are my options. But you're not losing a leg. Not losing a leg. No way I could live like that. Yeah. Yeah. Two years later, I would have taken that. You would have taken losing one leg. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Wow. Well. But back to your point, if you told me at that time, in two years, you're going to be severely paralyzed to the point where you have no more independence, be completely dependent on people for the rest of your life. I said, Mm. mm -mm. kill me. Yeah. So you had to say, I didn't. Real quick, I didn't yeah. realize. Now I'm staring that in the face. It wasn't kill me. It's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live. I'm gonna survive. And then in the beginning, it was, I'm gonna walk again. I'm gonna beat it. So, so when when you realize how serious this is, um, was there a moment where you're like, I don't want to live anymore, or would, did you quickly move into what you just said, where it's like okay, I'm going to figure this thing out. I'm going to figure out how to walk again. So for the first two years, it's gung-ho, all about getting better, all about getting back to my own life, old life, um, you know, getting back to getting it all back. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because the the spinal cord is, you know, it's within your, your vertebrae. It's uh, protected by hard bone, but it also doesn't doesn't have a lot of room to expand. So when it's bruised or swells, it basically closes off on itself, cuts off blood flow. And that's the reason spinal cord injuries are so serious is because of the blood flow. Mm -hmm. The tissue dies. Well, it takes about two years for all the swelling in any spinal cord injury to completely go away. Two years, I had no idea. It takes two years for the swelling to go away. So you're in that thinking that, well, two years, this could be different then. Right, and so in those first two years, you could wake up one day and all of a sudden be able to move something or feel something you couldn't the day before. Mm -hmm. Like for me, the first six months, only only one of my lungs worked. I was on a ventilator. And okay, let me just pause for a second there again. That's got to be a little scary, though. Like, when you're saying only one lung work, I don't know what that feels like to only have one lung work. Is it, was it really hard to breathe? Was it laborious to breathe? Oh, yes, yes. A little, like, did you feel like someone, like, maybe with asthma, like you're breathing through a straw or, like? Yeah, or, like, on a hot day when you feel like you just can't get enough You just can't air. get it. And that's how you were like every breath you take. Yeah. Man, Scott. Okay, so you're you're going through these two years. There's a little bit of hope that the swelling's going to go down. You, you only Not have a little bit of hope. That's all my hope. That's all your hope. Yeah. Okay. So um, two years comes. 
about a year and a half comes. Reality is, not much has changed. Yeah, I've made some progress, but I can't even use my arms. Mm. I'm not going to be walking again in two years. Yeah. That's when the depression. Yeah. That's when it's, oh, this is probably for life. What did you go through with that depression then? Like that, when that hit. Long, dark road, lots of anger, pointed at everyone. God, my parents, my mom for, you know, I, I blue coated twice in the hospital. Right after you got there? In the first week. In the first week. After the injury, yeah. So I blamed my mom for a long time. Basically, that she couldn't let me go. She kept making him. You wished, when you start going through your depression, then you you wished that they would have just let you go that first mm-hmm. week when you, so what you had thought when you were 16 or 18 when you had that knee injury and you're like, I don't want to live if that you were, you were there again. But yeah. now it's a reality. It's not no, just it's... like a lot of us have done in our mind, like I would rather die than be paralyzed. This is actually what you're living. Mm. Hmm. How long were you going through that depression? Long time. Yeah. You know, the other thing is, is um, from the day one of my injury, they had me on heavy-duty narcotics, pain meds. And long story short, you know, 17 years out, they realized this, this pain that all the doctors had told me was nerve pain. There really isn't a good way to to treat nerve pain. Um, it was actual real pain I was feeling. And after they were able to address it, this pain I've been feeling for 17 years was gone. So I was able to wean off all those pain meds. It took so you me were on pain meds for 17 years. And would heavy they, duty. Would, would, they, would they affect, mess with your head some and the depression and... Yeah. Oh, yeah, like, I was on methadone, which they give heroin addicts to help them get oh, off wow. heroin. I was on that for eight years, yeah. and all they did was, as it became less effective, they just keep upping the dose, upping the dose. I was a zombie. Which is only adding to, like, you've had this life-changing experience anybody can imagine that that would d- drive you to depression and some things. But but then you on top of that, you have all this medication and you're not even thinking straight in some ways. No, my my constant prayer at that time was, God, take me. Just take me. Please. Mm. Um, But so, get off the meds and then took about two years to completely wean off of them. And then it was, whoa. Now I'm facing this injury with a sober mind Mm -hmm. for the first time. Mm -hmm. So finally grappling and dealing with this emotionally sober for real. And are you saying that was like 19 years then? 17 years? And then two years to get off? So I was just going to say, I did the math when we were on the phone. That's not, that's only a couple of years then that you've been, that, so you, 
you get off of that and you're having to deal with this for the first time sober in a sense. Yeah. Wow. So you're still processing this in some ways. Yeah. Well, I think something like this is by process. Yeah. So when did you come? You, you made a statement to me when we were on the phone that blew my mind where you had mentioned you were July 6, 2000, you were 20 years old. So I did the math really quick and I'm going to surprise people that know me well that I did the math correctly. And I said, so you've actually been paralyzed longer now at this point in your life than you were, than you had a healthy body. Mm -hmm. And you said, yes, but that day saved my life. July 6, 2000. That's right. What? Yeah, the path, like I said before, you know, society, culture, it tells you what you should aspire and mm-hmm. live to be and, oh, this is what success is. And if you achieve all these things, you'll be happy and love life and everything will be great, right? Mm-hmm. No. You know, yeah, on the surface, everything looked like it was going great for me. But underneath, I was crumbling under the pressure. It's an emotional wreck. I didn't want to do it. So if I would have run into, if I could get in a time machine and go back to July 5th, 2000, run into Scott, outwardly I would have looked at someone and said, gosh, I want to be like him, man. He's The girls are throwing themselves at him. He's this athlete. He's fit. He's going, he's possibly going to the Olympics. But you were miserable inside. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was falling apart inside. Yeah. yeah. When did you come to the point, though, because obviously it took a long time to come to the point where you said that day saved my life. When were you able to say that? Well, it took a long time. Uh-huh. I can say I so there's a, there's a a couple points. The first point that I remember is probably eight to ten years out. You know, just praying to God, like just the whole woe is me. Why me? All about me, 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 me. And this this memory came rushing, flooding back of back in the rehab hospital. And um, it was my first return after getting released, first time coming back. And as I'm rolling in, another quadriplegic is rolling out in his power chair and he was injured a little higher up than I was and he was still on a ventilator which means he's probably going to be on a ventilator for life and as we're crossing paths our eyes just met for a split second it was almost that just that understanding and 10 years later boom for whatever reason that random memory hits me and I think oh you know what it could be worse Mm. you could be that guy Mm. you could be having to deal with life from that guy's perspective you're whining and complaining and crying about you know where you're at right now I think God was trying to tell me look kid be thankful Cause it could be worse. Wow. It could be a lot worse. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that was a turning point. And long story short, when I was weaning off the meds, I have to say that was probably the most difficult time. Hmm. Um, Going through the withdrawals, just drenched in sweat, the emotional, all of it. And in that, at that time, that night in my brokenness, I just cried out, probably the most real prayer I've ever prayed. And God, I can't do this. Hmm. If you, if you don't find a way to make this link where I can actually get through and do this, like I'll find a way to end this myself and stop waiting for you to take me. So I said that prayer and the next day I ran into an old friend that I hadn't seen in a long time. And um, he had an older brother who had a spinal condition where he's basically bedridden and his older brother was in a place where he was either too drugged up, you know, where the pain was manageable, but he wasn't really coherent or he wasn't that drugged up, but in too much pain to be mm-hmm. coherent. So, you know, um, my friend, we really, we became good friends just because of what he had dealt with with his brother. Yeah. So anyway, it had been like two or three years since I'd seen him. And he didn't tell many people about his brother. So I, I asked him, hey, you know, how's your brother doing? And he was all happy to see me at first. And when I said that, his whole attitude changed and looked at me like, you want to hit me? It's like, hmm. weird, okay. Why would you ask me about my brother? It's like, well, because you told me about him. Um, you know, he's he's got some medical stuff he's got to deal with, and just curious, you know, how he's how he's doing. It's like, oh, you don't know. It's like about a year ago, he committed suicide, and he went through in detail how his brother did it. And was crying. He started talking about his brother's kids and his wife and the brokenness. And then he still gets phone calls from his kids crying. And God was telling me, you're making this all about you. (laughs) Sure, you can go kill yourself. What's that going to do to your parents? What's that going to do to everyone who ever loved you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the most selfish thing you could do. And you'll be teaching them the total wrong thing. Mm-hmm. You'll be letting the enemy win. And uh, who knows how many more you'll end up taking down. Yeah. So... I got my answer a day later. Wow. 
and it told me, yeah, you have a choice. But these are the consequences yeah. that you won't have to deal with of your choice. But a lot of other people will. And that ripple effect will be far wider and far more reaching than you'll ever know or imagine. But I'm God, I'm all-knowing, and I know. And sure, if you choose that, I'll do, I'll, I'll make, make good out of it. But I'd like to keep you here and make good with you here. Scott, that's um, incredibly powerful because, as you know, as I shared, you know, this podcast is all about the power of choice and the complexity of choice. And obviously you were dealing with a choice that a lot of us have said in the back of our minds without actually knowing what it would be like. Yeah, if that ever happens to me, I would. And you're 17 years after it, you're still thinking, contemplating that. But then you were confronted with a real choice. Like, are you, is that, is that really what you're going to do? Mm-hmm. And God gives you an opportunity, opens your eyes to the fact that that choice would actually hurt and wound a lot of other people. And, and was a, you use the word, a, a rather selfish choice. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, my suffering, my pain here in this world will be done and over. But separated from God, I don't know. Yeah. That suffering and pain is beyond yeah. mine or any of our true understanding. But sure. Yeah. Getting over all this is a quick, easy, yeah, wow. be done with it. But So, um, dreams, you know, we all have these dreams. You obviously had them that morning you woke up, July 6, 2000. Mm-hmm. Those dreams were going to radically change, which is part of the process, You the, the whole thing that you had to go through. And you're sharing with us that it was 17 plus years later, 19 years later, really after you get off the medication, what are some of your dreams now? I mean, you it 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 twenty. I want to be an Olympian. Yeah, want to have it all. Um, now. You know. It's not about me. That's been the, the big lesson, the hard lesson for me to learn, is um. How to truly surrender. And, <laughs> be obedient. So. I don't know. My dreams are wherever God wants me to go, wherever he wants to take me, what he wants me to do. That's and that's what I'm going to do. There is no better place to be than that, is there? So far, no, that's, yeah. Yeah. It's the best place I've found. Yeah. S- surrender. I, you know, it, it's so interesting to me how you, you even paused with that. Like when I asked you, like, what are your dreams? You paused a little bit and you were when you were answering, but but because you're saying it's not about me, a lot of times when you have like if if you ask me my dreams, I would start to rattle off a bunch of them, but I would actually find out like you're really making me pause and think, Scott, because I'd find out a lot of my dreams are about me. And what if God has a different plan? What if God's gonna do something different? And where you're at in life now is you're coming to this point. I wouldn't say come because none of us are going to arrive in this life, right? But you're coming to the point where you're. it's easier for you to say, it's not about me. Well, and 
I think most people realize over their lifetimes, the dreams they hold on to the tightest are the ones that God will rip away and the ones that hurt the most because you hold on to it so tight. Yeah. It's what you want. You, you, you. Yeah. He's trying to teach you, child. It's not what you want. Did you obviously said you were angry with a lot, including God. Walk us through a little bit like what that process was for you because anybody could understand, okay, God, you could have stopped this from happening. You could have protected me from this. You didn't. Did you struggle with, with the idea of God being a good God? Oh, yeah. Because it's like, okay, God, why didn't you, why didn't you blow a breeze that distracted me for two seconds? That's all I would have taken. I would have missed her. It would have been a close call and I would have moved on. You wouldn't even have known. Like mm. you would have, you were like, well, that was a close call. And then you would never thought about that another moment. Mm-hmm. But it finally it dawned on me. This is a broken world. Um, and we have to deal with not only our own sin, but other sins and fallout and sins of ignorance are still sin. And so it's part of the broken world. Right. What's the, the, the positive takeaway? It's temporary. It's temporary. Back to your thing. It's temporary if you make the right choice. So for me, understanding, to me, hell is separation from God. Mm-hmm. And what is God? God is joy, love, mm-hmm. light, beauty, everything that makes you feel good, mm-hmm. everything that brings a smile to your face, everything that you enjoy about this world. Imagine never getting to experience it or understand it or hold it again all you get to have is all the negative Mm -hmm. that's all you get to experience for eternity yeah that's not a very hard choice yeah yeah i'll take a life in a wheelchair and excruciating pain and being completely dependent on others for 80 however long yeah but it's there's an end. Mm-hmm. And the, that's one of the hopes that we all have as believers in Jesus, right, is where he says he's going to come back someday and make all things new. He's going to right all the wrongs, all the injustices, mm-hmm. all the brokenness. Um, when when we're up uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to be watching you running through fields and jumping, and you will probably, uh, I don't know how all that works with whether we remember this life or right. not, but if we do it all, you're going to be enjoying that more than most of us, right? In the sense that it's, you're not going to take it for granted as much. We'll do it together. Yeah. But, the, but, but you brought up an important point, though, where it's not just that you're waiting for that. You are. You're waiting in some ways probably with more hope and longing than some of us are, but you're also, there's also this point of uh, that, that God is doing something in you that he couldn't have or didn't prior to this, which is what you meant when you said this, that accident saved me. Mm-hmm. It saved me. And obviously he knew I wasn't ready or the man he needed me to be at that time to 
really spread his gospel, his word, and and help bring others to him. Yeah. And help him, you know, achieve his, his goal of relationship with all of us. Yeah. You used the word surrender earlier. Mm-hmm. What do you think it means to truly surrender to God? Less of me, more of him. Mm. Less of me, more than him. More over than and him. over and over. Mm-hmm. Every day, every minute. Are you there yet? I work on it every day. Yeah. But I think that's one of those, it's a daily minute by minute mm-hmm. choice. Yeah. That's a great point because you might have actually, when I asked you, are you there yet? You might have actually been closer to arriving yesterday. And then today it's just not a good day and you didn't choose sometimes. That's right. So it's it's fluctuating, right? It's not just mm-hmm. like this straight line upward or downward. It's, right. it's a little bit of a, which is again, what, what, what life is, right? Well, it's back to ultimately what's in your control. What's in my control? <laughs> That's a great. That's a good question because if, if you're asking me, I'm supposed to be doing this podcast, Scott. <laughs> you're asking me that question, then you're looking at me, and you, you know my answer to that would be, unfortunately, I think there's a lot more in my control than there actually is, which is where a lot of my problems come in probably as a human, right? I control less than I think I do. I think the, really the, the only thing we have under our control is how we, we react. How we react to situations. So, if you get bad news, how do you react to it? If you get good news, how do you react to it? Wow. Wow. And this Christ and his, his teaching, teaching us, be mindful of how you react to everything. And follow me. These are the ways you should react to this, this, and this. Scott, l- listen, I and I say this to you. Like, I've he- I've heard a lot of people say that, and I was a preacher. I've preached that message a lot from the stage. Oh, but to hear, to, th- there's this is this is how God is is using this. To hear you say it, there's a depth to it like I've never experienced before. I've preached that. I've heard people say it, but when you sit there and you say that, there's a depth to that. And that is one of the ways that God is using you in your story. So thank you. Well, thank God. Yeah, yeah. Man, I, I honor you. Um, we will, I, I ask the listeners to, because you're actually dealing with some health issues right now, right? So are you okay with me saying, hey, listeners, be praying for Scott because they're trying to figure out some things yeah. that are going oh, on right yeah. now. Definitely because, you know, I, I want to be more involved. I want to do more at my church. And a lot of times just physical health issues get in the way and it's just, yeah. Discouraging anyway. at times for sure. So, yeah, we, you know what, we, we are going to be praying for you, my friend. I'm asking all of our listeners to be praying for you with, uh, with some of those things. I just honor you. Thank you for your story. What thank you for gem. having me and thank you for letting me be a, a part of this. And I can't wait to see where, yeah, where all this goes, what you guys are working on. This, this is great. And anything, anything I can do to, to help in the future. Yeah. Please. 
Well, we will 100% keep that in mind for sure, because that's what this is about is to, you know, especially with young people with this move, when this movie comes out, we want to be tied to this curriculum and help uh, children learn. One of the things, children and youth, uh, young adults, one of the parts of this curriculum is resiliency. And if there's a story that speaks into resiliency, I mean, those those numbers you're talking about, 17 years. So not only did you deal with this injury and this life-changing moment, but 17 years you're on these drugs that are battling, that are clouding your mind, and then you got to go through withdrawal for two years, and then you've got to deal with all the stuff of that time and that thing that happened twenty almost 20 years before, but now you're dealing with it. I mean, that's, talk about resiliency. So uh, what an amazing story. We honor you, my friend. Um, huge respect. You're one of my heroes now. I didn't meet you personally until right now, and you are definitely one of my heroes now. But purely because when you talk about your surrender, I want to get there. You know, one thing people just listening don't see but I can't hide, I guess, my pain, my suffering. It's out there for everyone to see. So maybe that's part of the difference that I I, I have to be honest. I, yeah. I have to be truthful because yeah. I can't just yeah. put on a different face and yeah. hide what I'm really dealing with. Dealing with. And so... Your transparency and authenticity are definitely one of the things. And like you're saying, you're you're kind of forced into that. Mm-hmm. But I think God uses that in a special way. I hope he does. And for those of us that aren't forced into it, it's a good reminder that if we will choose to surrender, there's going to be more of an honesty and transparency in our life. And God loves to really shine through that, doesn't he? I think so. Yeah. Well, thank you, my friend. One of the things is I was telling you that we love to do on this podcast is, and it's ironic um, we call it no gray areas, but all of our guests, I do two truths and a lie. So we've gotten a chance to, to meet you. Uh, we've gotten to know you a little bit, but let's see if you can stump us. Tell us three things, two of them truths, one of them a lie hmm. and see if I can figure it out. Okay. I love fast cars. Okay. I love computers. Okay. And let's see. And I love, I love social media. Okay. You love fast cars. You love computers. You love social media. I'm going to say the middle one. I love computers is a lie. (laughs) You got me. You got me. It's social media, isn't it? Oh, I was going back and forth yeah. on it. I, I, I wondered. I wondered if that was it. You know what I went with? This is what I went with because you had me stumped pretty good. I was watching all Looking your non-verbals. You looked up to the, the left with face. computers, and I was like, "Well, I've heard or read that sometimes people do that when they're lying." So I tested it. You got me. You got me. So you don't like social media? Not a fan. No. Yeah. Why not? I just think it's it's one of those things that most people aren't responsible mm. enough or disciplined enough to not really just have it take over their lives yeah. and get like obsessed with, Oh no, so-and-so didn't look at it or so-and-so blocked me. Yeah. And it's like, no, I mean, you talked about the problem with the whole me 
it's all about me and social media probably doesn't exacerbate it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, Scott, thank you so much, my friend. I have thoroughly enjoyed this time. It's and been great. I, thank you. I just made a new friend today. So I'm, I'm excited and I'm going to take you up on that when you said, hey, if there's anything else you can do, uh, I may reach out to you at some point because I have no doubt that there's a lot that you can do. I have a question for you. Okay. Do you like fast cars? I love fast cars. Well, then we should go for a ride in a fast car sometime. You really like to go fast, huh? Oh, yeah. I'm still an adrenaline junkie. Are you really? Oh. Yeah, you'd have to be. if which Yeah. You, and that's such a great point. That wouldn't have changed. Like, no. you didn't have an accident 23 years ago or 22 years ago, whatever it was now, and all of a sudden that changes. So you still like adrenaline and speed. Fastest car you've been in? My my car. Yeah. 2014 Shelby Super Snake Mustang. Pushing about a thousand horsepower. What? Yeah, it's fun. What? So do you? Do you? Well, I, I ride in it. I, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but I was just gonna say, uh, do you take it to a track or do you? Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. I was I was careful with that one because if you said no, then I wasn't gonna ask you how fast have you gone in it. But on a track, how fast have you gone in it? Two hundred. <gasps> no. It's the closest. It's the closest rush, I can get. To, to diving, but it's still not the same. Yeah. Like when you did a perfect dive and you just, what, was that well, the just, rush with diving? No, just pulling G-forces, doing tons of flips and twists. And See, I don't the know most because right, I can't even get around in one I think front flip or back flip. Without. The only people that could probably relate are like jet fighter yeah, pilots. pilots. They'd probably be the ones that could put me to like the next level. Yeah. I did not, I've never thought about that with like the diving and the, where, where the G forces that you're putting on your body when you go around like that. Wow. Okay. Do, can you, can you maybe send us a picture or a video of you when you, did anybody take one when you've been driving like fast when someone's been driving you on the track? Yeah. Yeah. I would love to see your face when you're going at a high speed like that. Could you maybe send us that? Sure. For okay. Sure, Cause if, if you do, we'll post it when we, when we post this, we'll post that. And, um, Tell people they'll know more about the story if they see that. Because I would love to see your face. I would love to see my face going that fast. I think the fastest I've ever gone in a vehicle is about uh, 120. Now, I'm telling all the listeners, I was actually doing a ride-along with cops, so we were in a chase. <laughs> I was in the sheriff's vehicle. We were legal. But that that was an adrenaline rush. You were a whole nother level with that. Yeah. That's awesome. That is so cool. Tell me again. What's the car? What vehicle do you own? It's a 2014 Shelby Super Snake. With like the thousand horsepower package, yeah. Oh my goodness! Wow. All right, I definitely made a friend. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Well, it's it. been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. All right. And yeah, God bless. God bless, my friend. There are some testimonies and stories that we hear in life that we'll never forget, and Scott's is no doubt one of those. What a powerful story! And for you and I, as we move forward in life, let's remember, as Scott shared that there are circumstances in our life that we cannot change. But what we can change, what we do have the power to change is our attitude in those circumstances, our thinking in those circumstances. Like, follow, and subscribe to No Gray Areas. 